You are listening to NTC Messina's podcast, where our desire as the family of God is to simply know God, love one another, and make disciples. Glad you're here this morning, and if you're online, we're glad you're joining us that way. Um, excited to continue our series in Revelation. Really, we just have a couple more weeks of that, and uh, then we'll kind of be moving on, but we have... Uh, a number of chapters to walk through. We're not going to obviously hit everything as we haven't been doing. Um, today we're kind of walking through, I guess it's uh, four, almost five different chapters. And I'm going to give you a few overviews, but I'm going to hit kind of a big main theme. And if you look at your notes, hopefully you got notes as you came in, or if you're online, uh, the title of the message is just terrifying. Judgment, Wrath, and Justice. Uh, isn't this a fun one? You know, I'll just I'll just be you know real. As I've been um, studying and teaching on this series, I actually I'm reading a book along with it, and I don't know if I mentioned that here before. But if you're interested in more in depth, but nothing too crazy, because listen, if you just Google like books about Revelation, I wouldn't necessarily recommend just picking any random one off the shelf and reading it. Um, but I really like this one I'm reading currently. I've read parts of it in the past. It's by N.T. Wright, and it's called Revelation for Everyone. Uh, N.T. Wright is a theologian today, really well known. I appreciate almost all of his stuff. Uh, he has a whole series that's just called whatever the book of the Bible is, and then he's, it says for everyone. So there's like Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew, for everyone. And what he does is he reads through part of the chapter, and then he goes through explanation and thoughts, context, background, those kinds of things. So if you're really interested in more in-depth, instead of just kind of the big themes that we're able to hit, you can find that book, Revelation for Everyone. It's on Kindle and, and everywhere else books are sold. So I wanted to give you just that little bit, because I know some people are asking for more even uh, specifics, and uh, you know you just can't do that in 40 minutes on a Sunday. So, all right, so we're picking up in Revelation 11. I'm just going to hit this chapter real quick because because uh, we, we kind of want to move into a couple of themes, and we're going to really camp in Revelation 14 today. So Revelation 11, and if you've got your notes, I've kind of put a little title at the top of each section of the chapter because this just kind of sums up, there's a storyline or imagery that's being told in this moment. Again, let's, let's remind ourselves that Revelation is a ridiculous amount of imagery, a lot of symbolism, a lot of metaphors, a lot of stuff that the current you know, reader today would maybe struggle with, but the first century reader would have some understanding that is beyond us. So here we are, Revelation 11, and what takes place is there's kind of a story inside of the bigger story that actually happens here. And it's about these two witnesses that show up on the scene and these two witnesses that kind of are given this authority over the earth. And one of the things they're given authority over is wrath. Wrath. Like, who likes this word wrath? If you look it up, there's no easy way to paint the word wrath. It simply means basically anger, but it's not just regular anger, it's like built-up anger was the idea. Wrath is like this idea behind someone almost having explosive anger. It's like there was all these things that took place, and then the anger finally came out. Has anybody ever experienced that in their own life? Yes, most of us have. 
And so there's this place where they're given this authority over wrath released on the earth. And you start to see there's all this harsh language about what's going to take place and these things that happen. And so I want to hit these topics because I think that we've painted, especially parts of the Bible like this. You, usually you get two sides of Christianity. you got one side that wants to focus on wrath and judgment all the time. And, and they almost paint everything in the picture that, you know, kind of filters through just the idea of wrath and judgment, whether it's the cross, even the idea you hear people say, well, God took the wrath of humanity on the cross. Well, that might be partially true, but it is absolutely not the whole picture. Because wrath isn't only about the anger or this pent-up, you know, released anger that takes place. And so we can't just lean all the way on wrath and judgment. And you can even see centuries of Christian history where that became the focus, right? You know, the fire and brimstone message. But then you've got even sometimes a reaction to the fire and brimstone message or wrath or judgment and that thinking. And then you can see a pendulum swing sometimes happens in Christianity. And the only thing ever talked about is the love of Jesus and grace and mercy. And both of those are incorrect by themselves. And actually what we see here and really what is trying to happen through the book of Revelation and through some of these chapters is a marrying of the two that really you can't have love without some anger in a broken world, I should say. Because this is what happens. Now, I want to try to put it in a context of our current day or, or our own lives, how we would understand. You know, as a, I, I think one of the first times that I maybe started to recognize or try to wrap my mind, honestly, around the idea of how can God, this loving God, this God we just sung about, reckless love. You know, reckless just means like an unassured, he spent love on you, but with an unassured payback of it. It's reckless. It's reckless spending. <laughs> That's what the word prodigal means in the story of the prodigal son, but there's also the prodigal father in the story who recklessly spends on his son who wastes it. That's the picture of God for us. And so we have this idea of this reckless spending love God, but then we also have this picture of, of this anger that can come out. And I think the first time I started to be able to wrap my mind around it was, was once when I saw my daughter choke one of her siblings. And in that moment, it was like I exploded. I saw her in this angry moment choking her sibling, and I erupted. I grabbed her hand away. I pulled her away, probably even slightly violently. And I, and I yelled, what are you doing? And I remember after that being like, okay, I, you know, I don't, I don't want to react. I don't want to be an angry dad. But I remember this thought of, but I was doing it to protect my other child. And what we see is that in a broken world, you actually can't have love without some anger or some wrath because actually you have to be angry when evil comes into the picture. You see, none of us were meant to commit evil acts. None of us were meant to do things outside of our design. And what we see throughout the whole Bible and even here in Revelation is that when humanity begins to act apart from God's design in this sense of evil, this whole brokenness, but when they start to act in a way that is destroying the rest of mankind, God gets angry about that. 
And it's actually the right reaction. But this is the caveat I want to paint today. His wrath and his anger are not towards you and I or even other people. His wrath and anger is towards the injustice of what we do. And there's a difference. You see, when I got mad at my daughter, I didn't begin to hate her. No, I was mad at what she was doing that was outside of what she should do. I was mad at the injustice that it was causing my other child. Now, maybe they deserved it. But I was, <laughs> that, that kind of messes up my whole storyline here, but, because <laughs> they probably were tormenting her, but anyway. <laughs> but, but at the injustice of this anger that gets put on them, there's this place where I didn't begin to hate my child, but I hated what they were doing. And you see, we can't paint God in this wrathful figure without understanding where the wrath and anger is pointed. It's actually never pointed at people. It's pointed at the misdesign of who they, what they've done. At, and what we see actually through the book of Revelation is not a picture of a wrathful God towards humanity, but actually a now a wrathful God towards evil and towards what we see as the beast, the dragon, the accuser, every every chapter painting it differently. And so we see this, this, these witnesses that now release wrath, but it's in this right mindset. And then we get down to chapter 12, and we've got this story of a woman and a dragon. We're not going to read through much or any of the scripture here. And you've got this dragon that comes up, and it says that it makes war against this woman, and this woman has this child, and the child is caught up to heaven. And we see this picture, right? Does this look familiar to us? This idea of this woman having a child who is supposed to save the world. Yeah, it should sound familiar. And then this, this, this uh, war is made against the woman, and then she is taken away and kept safely. And then it says that there's a war from the dragon. Now, he's defeated, right? Actually, I know that Ted spoke on uh, chapter 12, verse 11. It says, they defeated him by the blood of the lamb and the word of their testimony. And you see that there's this kind of key put in the middle of there that there's this enemy and this war we're against, but it's not each other, it's the accuser. It's the beast, it's the dragon, whatever you want to call him, the serpent, Satan, the devil. There, there is this evil one, even we see it in Matthew 5 and 6, when Jesus teaches his disciples to pray and the, the Lord's pray, all Christian, you know, acts of faith or or, you know, expressions of faith, know the Lord's prayer. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. The actual translation says the evil one. It doesn't just say evil. The evil one, that there is an accuser, there is an adversary in this world that constantly tries to make us act apart from who we are as humanity and make us look like something we were never meant to look like, to actually become like him. And what we see in Revelation is a God who's done with it all. And this is actually what is supposed to be exciting about these, these chapters that we're about to read or, or that you should read through 11 through 15, 
is you see this wrath that keeps coming out, and it comes out, and if you don't understand where that wrath is being poured out, it, it might just be a terrifying thought that God is sick of people, but he's not. In fact, he's just sick of the evil one. He's tired of what the enemy has done to the world in which he created. We go back to Genesis where we started with this whole series. And he creates this perfect world. He creates this garden. He creates humans to put in it. And he gives them purpose and relationship. And it's all right and it's all whole. And then things go awry. Why? Because of the serpent. Because the serpent deceives and lies and we believed it. And then we see this world gone awry a world really defaced and corrupted by the evil one. And what we get to in Revelation is a God who is now sick and tired of it and is done. Any parent ever felt that way? It's why when something of injustice takes place, like school shootings, why all of us are pinned in the media wanting to know what? Who did it? Who, who would do such a crazy, heinous thing? And we look and wonder, did the police catch them yet? Have they put them, are they in jail yet? Or have they gone through court? Are they being convicted rightly? Why does that matter to us? Because something is built in us that without justice, you really can't love appropriately. And so revelation is not justice on humanity itself, but it's actually justice on evil and the evil one. And the wrath and judgment that we read about throughout Revelation isn't aimed really at the people. Now, unfortunately, I'll tell you this. People get caught up in it. And what, we, what you read, if you read every verse through 11 and 12, it, there's a couple again where it says, and the people refuse to repent. It says it multiple times. And so there's people who choose to go with the evil one. And so what happens when you choose to follow the evil one is you get under the punishment of what's going to happen to the evil one. But it's not aimed at you. you don't have, we don't have this God of the universe who's just picking and choosing like, oh yeah, you're really cool and I like you, so you get grace and mercy, but you over there, no, wrath, judgment. No, in fact, he's trying to release grace and mercy over every human, but sometimes we literally choose to reject it and go where the wrath and judgment is. But you see, God is a good father. And a good father would not sit idly by and be okay with someone who comes and wrecks his creation. And so Revelation is actually a celebration story of a God who's now done with letting evil have its way, and he's going to make everything right again. So you see in Revelation 13, there's just one verse I pulled out there. It says, this means, in verse 10, chapter 3, this mean that, means that God's holy people must endure persecution patiently and remain faithful. You see this storyline that begins to take place as judgment and wrath comes, and then it goes back to God's people, and it says it a couple times in there, that God's people must remain faithful and patiently endure persecution. You see, one of the things that's a struggle for us is that as the world maybe falls apart around us in different ways, now this has happened through almost every century in history. You know, every century believes that it's the end and that it's worse than the last one. 
But the truth is, if you go throughout history over and over, we're just in a constant repeat cycle of humanity. And you see what happens is times where, where evil rises, and we see wars break out, and, and there's terrible destruction and, and pain and hurt, and then usually, hopefully, someone good wins in that, and then that thing subsides, and there's times of peace, and then, then there's other times where peace subsides again, and this evil rises again. We see this cycle constantly, and you see it all the way from the beginning of Genesis all the way till now, that there really is war between good and evil constantly happening. And the story of Revelation is actually supposed to be a relieving story of us for us, not to just look at wrath and judgment like, oh, yay, but to actually go, oh, this is the final end of it. There is going to be an end to this cycle. There is going to be an end to humanity just messing up again and, and becoming evil again and then, and then you know, things changing and God showing up and miracles happening that at one point God's going to finally separate it all and there's going to be goodness that reigns. That's the hope of what Jesus does. But in the midst of it, he says that we have to patiently endure persecution. And that's for every generation. We've seen it in real ways like the Nazis and the Jews. We've seen it in ways where it's just simply uh, maybe this atmosphere of the world looking down on Christianity or down on people who have given their life to God. We see it in different ways. But the truth is there's a place where we're supposed to be able to endure, knowing that God is going to set it straight. And that's really what the message has to come to us. We have to realize God is going to set this all straight. You know, the times that I've wanted to give up myself, the times that I've wanted to just go, oh, throw in the towel, it's when I start to stop believing that God's actually going to fix any of this. Or maybe I lose sight of, does God care to fix any of this? And you've got to imagine the first century readers are in the midst of the Roman Empire who has taken over most of the world and caused real tyranny and real pain, murdering Christians in the Colosseum. All sorts of horrific things are taking place. And they're getting this idea that there's going to be a God who's going to bring justice and he's going to set this straight. And it's actually... It's actually a moment of hope for them to read this. But sometimes you can, you can see the scriptures that are in these chapters of Revelation and it gets turned into this like angry God. And he's angry with you and you, if you want to just get away from his anger, then you better do this. But that's not really the case. It's a loving God who's angry at the evil in this world. So let's move down to Revelation 14. So in Revelation 14, you've got this wrath and judgment that has begun to come out. And, and then you see, uh, let's just start to read in verse 1. You've got John recording what he sees. And he says, Then I saw the Lamb standing on Mount Zion, and with him were 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a sound from heaven like the roar of mighty ocean waves or the rolling of loud thunder. It was like the sound of many harpists playing together. Now listen, these, these guys had the Father's name written on their foreheads. Now in just the previous chapter, which, you know, has been going around for centuries and centuries, the whole idea of the mark of the beast was there. 
It says that people would not, they would have a mark on their right hand or on their forehead of who they belong to, and you wouldn't be able to buy or sell without it. I just want to say this real quick. That was actually a common practice in the Roman Empire of the day. That the Romans actually controlled who could buy and sell. And, and they were constantly trying to get people, in a sense, to put these things on their, their foreheads. It was literally a, a tattoo or a mark on their wrist that would say this, we belong to Caesar. And so this would have been a very clear admonition to the Christians of the day. You don't belong to anybody but to Jesus. And then the very next verse in the next chapter was you have a mark on your forehead from Christ. And they would understand the contrast. I don't belong to this world. You remember we talked about that last week. I don't belong to this world, but I belong to this different kingdom, this different, I belong to God. Everybody's still trying to figure out what's the mark of the beast right now. I'm telling you, you can't accidentally get the mark of the beast. Can I just say that? It's just, a, it's just an idea that if you choose to belong to something other than God, then you're going to be marked. That there's this place where you've chosen to belong to the evil one and not to God. You can't accidentally get it, okay? So if you got vaccinated, you don't have the mark of the beast. Sorry for those who might think you do. It's not an accidental idea. It's like a choice of us to go, I don't want to be about God's kingdom. I want to be about some other kingdom. And most likely it's still just symbolic. There's this place where God's using this language in a day that they understood. Sorry, that's my Mark of the Beast tangent. And so we see this. It says this great choir, verse 3 of chapter 14, this great choir sang a wonderful new song in front of the throne of God and before the four living beings and the 24 elders. No one could learn this song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed. Now, remember, this 144,000 was this idea of fullness, 12 tribes and 12,000 each. That there was, It was, a, tr- it was a, a group of people who were reaching the ends of the earth, every language, every tribe, every tongue. It doesn't just mean 144,000. It means the fullness of who is to be redeemed. It says, They have kept themselves as pure as virgins, following the Lamb wherever He goes. They have been purchased from among the people on earth as a special offering. They have told no lies, and they are without blame. There's this idea, and it's, Bringing back this these people who represent God. And then we see these angels. I don't want to read every verse here because we don't have time to. But we see these angels. And these angels are, are kind of given, uh, I think this is, yeah, yeah. These angels are going to come and they're going to, they're going to say this stuff. But in verse 7, I want to read this. It says, they, they announce, fear God, he shouted. Give glory to him for the time has come when he will sit as judge. Worship him who made the heavens, earth, sea, and all the springs of water. So this was actually a good message based on everything I just said. See, when they say fear God, for the time has come when he will sit as judge, the idea was actually an excitement. You know, in their day, it was common that most places did not have a judge. They would have what was called a circuit judge. A judge that would travel around and deal with the issues in each city and each land. And so sometimes something bad would happen or a dispute would take place between people and they would sit waiting for long periods of time for a judge to come and render a righteous judgment. And so there was this idea that they understood this idea that the judge has come for them was not like, oh, no, the judge has come, which is what we've painted it today. It was like, oh, finally, the judge has come. 
It was this idea that I'm waiting for a righteous judgment in this court case or in this situation, and now you've come to, to, to declare what is righteous. So for them, it was an exciting notion to say the judge's time has come, not this fear of, oh, no, the judge's time has come. And as Christians, somehow we've painted all of these scriptures in this fearful way, and we've created a Christianity that's fearful of God, when it even, I know it says fear God, and there's a whole thing about understanding that. And mostly that's just a word to guess who? Not those who are Christians. It's an idea to say, listen, if you've been acting unrighteously, you should have a little fear. You should be worried about the righteous judgment that is going to come. If you're the one who did the wrong, you probably should have fear in this moment. But for those of us who know that we've been living following Jesus and walking in his kingdom, then it's actually a joyous moment to go, finally, he's coming to set this thing right. So let's move down. Verse 13, I wanted to point this one out too in chapter 14. I heard a voice from heaven saying, write this down. Blessed are those who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, they are blessed indeed, for they will rest from their hard work, for their good deeds follow them. I want to say this. This is just a really random tangent of mine. Christianity, okay, salvation can never be works-based. It's faith and faith alone. But Christianity is works-based. Okay, but there's a contrast. Salvation, absolutely faith-based only. You cannot get into heaven by doing anything except for receiving the grace of Jesus. But our Christianity, which means our life of following Christ, is actually about our works. And right here, even at the end of it all, it says their good deeds followed them. It says, in other ones, it says their works of righteousness followed them. That there's a place where faith in Christ gets us into this heavenly idea, into the kingdom of God, and it's only by his grace. But then there is an expectation of God on the other side of it to say, now what are you going to do about it? What's your life going to look like? Are you going to follow me in all the ways I've wanted you to? And I wanted to make, like, there's this constant contrast that takes place. Yes, the love of Christ comes and fulfills all of those needs for us and, and bridges that gap between us and the Father. But there's also a place where God is asking us to live and look differently. And that literally means the works of our life actually follow us when they're good, when they're righteous. Let's move on. Then we see in verse 14, we'll keep reading. Then I saw a white cloud, and seated on the cloud was someone like the Son of Man. He had a gold crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. Then another angel came from the temple and shouted to the one sitting on the cloud, Swing the sickle, for the time of harvest has come. The crop on earth is ripe. So the one sitting on the cloud swung his sickle over the earth, and the whole earth was harvested. After that, another angel came from the temple in heaven and he also had a sharp sickle. Then another angel who had power to destroy with fire came from the altar. And he shouted to the angel with the sharp sickle, Swing your sickle now to gather the clusters of grapes from the vines of the earth, for they are ripe for judgment. So the angel swung his sickle over the earth and loaded the grapes into the great winepress of God's wrath. 
The grapes were trampled in the winepress outside the city, and the blood flowed from the winepress in a stream about 180 miles long and as high as a horse's bridle. Ooh, that's weird. This is where I want to pick apart some things and land here. This is a very strange, if we just read this, it's like, what the heck? In fact, uh, anybody, can anybody just immediately start singing the battle hymn of the Republic? Anybody? Where's Joey? Does anybody know it? He is trampling out the vintage where the grapes of wrath are stored. He has loosed his faithful lightning of his terrible swift sword. His truth is marching on. All right, so this, this was written from this very verse. And I just want to say the writer got it wrong. Now, this was written, and it was called the Battle Hymn of the Republic. And, and we know that the Union Army would literally march into battle singing this. And in their mind, they were saying, God is with us. And they were literally, like, celebrating the idea of striking down their enemy and blood flowing in the streets. I would want to say that this is a miss. <laughs> because God's wrath and the blood flowing out here is not that of anger towards humanity. This is the whole point of where I started. And I want to give you just a little symbolism that they would have understood the metaphor that's taking place here. You see, this metaphor that's happening, it says the grapes were trampled in the winepress outside the city. And the blood flowed from the winepress in a stream about 180 miles long. This would have triggered an understanding of what took place with Jesus. You see, Jesus was taken outside the city, hung on a cross, and his blood was poured out for all mankind. There was this place where there's understanding that that blood that Jesus poured out covered everyone. It covered everybody's sin, everybody's understanding. It, it was this place that life was now new for every person. And that this, this would have been a metaphor to that moment that it says the grapes, right? The grapes would have totally been understood as the people of God. In fact, the grape in the vineyard was often understood as Israel itself and the Jewish people itself. And that this harvest was not this harvest of death, but actually a harvest of new life. In John 4, 36, Jesus says it. He says, in the harvest they reap is people brought to eternal life. This is Jesus' own words in John 4, where he's... Where he's talking about, not John 4, I'm misquoting. It's in there. You can find it. John 9, John 4. It's John 4. It is John 4. In John 4, where Jesus has been talking about the need for workers, and he says, the, the harvest is ripe. And this is, oh, it's after the woman at the well. Sorry, this is my brain. You're just following along with me, okay? The woman at the well, and he tells him, he tells her that he's the Messiah, and he talks about this harvest that's going to come. But the harvest isn't this idea of death and, and cutting people down, which is what literally the writers of the Battle of the Republic and others have interpreted as. No, the harvest was actually people brought to eternal life. It was this idea that this, this judgment and this wrath that was put down on the world is actually showing people that they need to follow God, and the harvest now is going to be incredible. And that the blood poured out on the cross is long enough and deep enough to cover everybody's sin. That was the idea. But sometimes we read this stuff or it's been 
propagated throughout history that there's this wrathful God and he's just looking in this angry moment, oh, I'm going to cut down half the world. That's not the case. In fact, he's saying, look, now is the time for a ripe harvest. And the harvest is people brought to eternal life, people's hearts coming to know Christ And that the blood that he poured out on that cross is deep enough and wide enough for every human, no matter what you've done. See, that is the heart of Jesus. That's the heart of God. Even as we read through Revelation and there's kind of harsh language to deal with and things to walk through, there's a place where God is a God of justice and judgment and wrath. Yes, but it's not on you and I. It's on the evil that has defaced and corrupted you and I. And I don't know about you, but there's a place where I want God to come and make everything right. I want God to come and set the world straight again. Romans 5.10, I wanted to end with this verse. You see Paul understanding this language and understanding that God's heart is for every one of us. And even Romans, you can see Romans takes kind of a, it feels like a roller coaster if you read the whole book of Romans. It begins really with this painting of sin in this super harsh way and all of us have fallen short and all of these things. But then it gets into the middle in Romans 8 and it talks about how can anything separate us from the love of God. And the idea was to paint this reality that When we don't have Christ's grace, yes, we're far from him, but yet his grace is literally here and available right now. Romans 5.10 says it this way. It says, For since our friendship with God was restored by the death of his son, while we were still his enemies, while we were still his enemies, it says, our friendship was restored. And in the Bible, they, they use a lot of black and white language that this idea of not choosing necessarily to be an enemy of God, but when we're not following him, we're against him. And he says that even while you were still in that place, I've restored my friendship with you. And even the, the people reading this in Romans would have looked back at the history of their own world and their own lives and they would have seen all of these moments where brothers became enemies in the Old Testament, where where countries became enemies and then this idea that friendship could happen again when you had become enemies was almost an impossible idea to them. And yet God uses this word because he wants to say, no matter how far apart you feel from me, I've restored our friendship. That what I paid for on the cross, what I let pour out of my life, covers everything. Nothing can separate you from the love of God. Except probably our own choice. That while we were still enemies, he restored our friendship with God by the death of his son. We will certainly be saved through the life of his son. So now we can rejoice in our wonderful new relationship with God because our Lord Jesus Christ has made us friends of God. You know, as we read through Revelation and 
all the things that have taken place, are taking place, will take place. It could be easy to start to paint in a misunderstanding of who God is. But I think that the overarching message in all of it is that he wants to be friends with us. And even in Romans later, it goes from friends, he wants to be our father. He wants to be in relationship. In the story of Revelation, the the picture that's being painted there is he's a God who's willing to go to any length to restore that relationship. Any length. No matter the cost, no matter the difficulty. Because for him, it's even less about our comfortability and more about connection. That he's willing to let us endure suffering and difficulty so that we can have relationship with him. He's willing to let us go our own way and learn the hard way, and he's waiting right there as a friend when we turn back. This is the picture of who God is. This is the picture of of what Jesus has accomplished for us. And Revelation is this ending picture that he is a God who is going to set it all right. He's going to set it straight. And the cost of it and the imagery of Revelation is supposed to make us realize it's unbelievable cost. But yet he's willing to do it for you and I. Why don't we stand this morning? I'm going to pray and Justin's going to come up. I just want to pray over you. God, we thank you this morning for what you're doing in our hearts. God, we thank you that you're not an angry God with anger aimed at us, but yet you are, you do have wrath, but it's not at us, it's at evil. It's at the wrongdoing of this world. It's at the corruption that's happened in this creation of yours. So God, we ask right now, let us, let us kind of look at our own hearts And make sure that we haven't put you in a certain box of what you're not like. God, I pray that every heart in this room and even online would realize that they are not so distant from you that you can't reach them. God, that there's nothing that can separate them from you. God, that the cost in which you endured on the cross goes far enough and goes deep enough to cover every one of us. So, Father, we give you our our hearts this morning in a fresh way. We give you our minds in a fresh way. I ask you to come and speak to every one of us today and bless every person. In Jesus' name. And we've been talking about in this series for the last couple months about God is in the restoration business. And he's restoring all things. He has a desire to restore. And I, I want to read what Greg, Greg re- referenced, Romans chapter 8. Paul is writing and he says, What shall we say about such wonderful things as these? If God is for us, who can ever be against us? Since he did not spare even his own son, but gave him up for all of us, won't he also give us everything else? Who dares accuse us whom God has chosen for his own? No one. For God himself has given us right standing with himself. Who then will condemn us? No one. 
For Christ Jesus died for us and was raised to life for us. And he is sitting in the place of honor at God's right hand, pleading for us. Can anything ever separate us from Christ's love? Does it mean he no longer loves us if we have trouble or calamity or are persecuted or hungry or destitute or in danger or threatened with death? No, despite all these things, overwhelming victory is ours through Christ who loved us. And I'm convinced that nothing can ever separate us from God's love, neither death nor life, angels nor demons, neither our fears for today nor our worries about tomorrow. Not even the powers of hell can separate us from God's love. No power in the sky or on the earth below, indeed nothing in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is revealed in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's the promise. That's what we're standing on. In in Luke chapter 4, and Elaine mentioned this on the video, Jesus, Jesus came and he read from the scroll of Isaiah and he said, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, for he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim that the captives will be released, that the blind will see, the oppressed will be set free, and the time of the Lord's favor has come. As we're reading through Revelation, we're awaiting that complete restoration. And, and in the meantime, we get pictures of it. We get pieces of it. We get a part of it. You know, and, and I, love, I love what Greg emphasized, and it's not new to us that, that salvation is by grace alone, but we have work to do in between. That we have a desire for restoration. We have a desire for healing. We have a desire for, for relationships to be restored. And we have a desire for, for people to be healed. And we don't get to experience all of it right now, but we will one day. But right now, we want greater restoration. We want greater healing. We want greater awareness of his love. So whatever whatever God is burdening you right now to believe for more in, to see restoration happen, to see you overcome maybe an addiction or to overcome that, that unforgiveness or whatever it is to find restoration, lean into that. Because our God's in the restoration business. God, we thank you for all of you've done to pour out your love on this world. God, may we increasingly be aware of it, increasingly be applying it to our lives and to our relationships and to to our to every corner of our existence. God, as we welcome your judgment, your justice, your restoration in the world. Help us to, to realize it in our lives and to, to see it played out in all areas of our world. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to NTC Messina's podcast. We hope you join us next week and have a blessed day.